Uh, yeah, so good morning and welcome to the Mildly Inebriated Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I love this. As far as names go, it's a good placeholder. I think so. I think so. But, <laughs> yes, not a definitive name yet, but let's roll with it. Um, how are you, my friend? I am good. You know what? This is like you know, Newbauer over here, because we didn't even introduce each other's names. We got to like... Two voices talking from the abyss. No names attached. Yes. Or maybe that's part of the appeal. Maybe that's what our audiences are. That's our niche. That's like... <laughs> our niches that were so unrelatable that, uh, you know, you can just kind of turn it on and not have to feel any connection. It's... Exactly. <laughs> I like this. I like this. But, I think uh, Oh, okay. What are we gonna say? <laughs> I was definitely going to give a name. It didn't even have to be a real one, not my own. But um, yeah. Please a mistake in the area if it's a real name. What what real or fictitious name do you want to assume? Well, Nick's a good fictitious name, I think. Nick, I, think. I think I think that works. Uh, I mean, yeah. there's so many Nicks that at this point, it's hard to believe you're not one. Um, well, that's right. Um, you know it's sort of yeah it's like fast food it's just reliable because it's everywhere and um you know you're a little I bit think, guilty for using it but yeah well it's nothing special like you know it's just run of the mill sort of thing that's fair much enough. like that's my personality ah oh, yes no that's uh, well that's uh, at least one thing we can agree on um I would be um, Jeroen, which is uh, quite obviously fake, because who would have such a horrible name? But uh, it's a pretty horror. It's a pretty horrible name because now you've done me the disservice of trying to pronounce it. So I'm guess I'm going to have to call you Jay to make a point easier. Is that something that you came up with on the spot? Because that is wildly creative. I mean, yeah. Look, again, when it comes to shortening names. Australians know what's up. Mac is Mac is fucking yeah. Look, Jay. Okay. Um, <laughs> don't be questioning my methods. I I wouldn't dare to. I wouldn't dare to. But uh, yes, thanks for for joining the what is now will henceforth be referred to as the Modly Inebriated Podcast. Um, there there is quite a lot of fun stuff on the agenda but uh, as always uh, or I suppose as from now on uh, I'd like you to start us off with the song of the day just so we can get in the mood yes ladies and gentlemen we have a new segment it is called song of the day and boy do I have a treat for you <laughs> so so Jay my song is a song called Play God. It is by an artist called Sam Fender from an album called Hypersonic Missiles. It was released in 2019 and I've uh, been listening to it over the last couple of days. It's uh, a song that gets tastier the more you listen to it. I first heard it on a uh, music uh, on a uh, video trailer for Netflix's Jupiter's Legacy. And uh, from there, it was just, you know, pretty much the replay button uh, over the last couple of days. Um, what is the song? Well, 
I suppose there's a couple ways of reading it. It's, it's really just it's really just a, a song about kind of cynical uh, abuses of power. Uh, there's a sort of a neoliberal commentary about it, but I think uh, the broader point is um, uh, abuses of power by powerful people. Um, and uh, the music video is quite good. It's sort of dystopic in all of the ways that, you know, dystopia is generally portrayed. Um, but a generally, you know, pretty epic sounding, beautiful vocals. Uh, I was actually recommending it to a mutual friend of ours while she was on LSD. And uh, she said that it uh, changed her perspective on life. Uh, so, you know. That happens quite a bit on LSD, I suppose. <laughs> yes. I don't know how much we can account for it, but nonetheless, it clearly has uh, changed her. Well, we'll see if it's for the better. But in, in any case, uh, I think it's a great song. I think everyone should check it out. Um, and it gets better the more you listen to it. I like it. I like it. Um, and um, editing. Jay, you also have a, uh, a quote for all of us. I hope it is a doozy. <laughs> You're putting a lot of pressure on me, but yes, of course, uh, uh, as always, uh, given that this is, you know, now 100% of all podcasts uh, have this segment, I think we can safely call it a tradition. Um, there is, a, you know, given the sort of introductory nature of this uh, of this affair, I, I enjoy the, um, I, I think that Douglas Adams' books, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the the trilogy of five books that kind of follows it generally has a great sense of humor. And uh, the second book starts off with a quote that always amuses me, uh, being the story so far. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. And um, yeah, it's the kind of uh, the kind of wit I can uh, I can vibe with, and I think uh, it's the way that most people should start anything. So. I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that with a strong recommendation to pick up, at the very least, the first book of the series. It's only about 150 pages, and it's some of the funniest shit you'll ever read. So, I too second this, um, both in the inside of the quote and also the book series itself. It's a bit of a hoot of a time, so, you know, I'm sure he'll appreciate two up-and-coming podcast artists giving his book the real boost that it needs to really break out into the mainstream. <laughs> yes, nobody has ever heard of this book, and uh, I'm sure if he's watching down on us somewhere, even that he has sadly passed away, Douglas Adams will be very happy that this is uh, that we we've taken it in this direction. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, let, if we move on to the meats of the podcast, no pun intended, um, <laughs> there is an essay we would like to discuss, being considered a lobster by um, American writer, novelist, and also uh, sadly no longer with us, uh, and David Foster Wallace. Um, he wrote this essay in about in 2004 for the Gourmet magazine, which is a, uh, which is a food magazine. And he wrote a review of the Maine Lobster Festival, um, which is well, what it sounds, it's a festival, it's almost, as if you went to a music festival, but it was centered around um, the eating of uh, of lobster. Maine, of course, being the American state 
most famous for uh, Ford's Lobster. And he describes the the general atmosphere of of the festival. Um, the 100,000 people showing up, the 25,000 pounds of lobster being consumed, the masticatory sounds of the hall, a word I had never heard before, but is related to uh, saliva and chewing noises, which I find to be both um, a little bit unsettling and um, and nice that there's, you know, there's always more words to describe a very specific instance of things happening. Uh, <laughs> And he makes more general comments on tourism, on uh, on the ethics of eating lobster and uh, and generally meat. Um, uh, sort of asking the question: Is it right to boil a sentient creature alive just for our gustatory pleasure? And I, uh, his writing style is as always uh, very compelling. He has a tendency for fairly extensive footnotes, one of which we'll dive into at some point here. Um, but it's about 20 pages, very much worth reading. But the questions it raises are so interesting and so well phrased that we thought it a good starting point for this podcast to uh, to jump into it. So for those who haven't read it, I will give a short introduction to the questions that he poses, and then we'll uh, we'll actually you know discuss those. So he is pretty much saying is that, you know, the justification that we use for boiling lobsters is that the nervous system of the lobster is very simple. So actually in the, sort of the, the festival propaganda, it is said that it's most similar to the nervous system of the grasshopper. Um, decentralized, no brain, and uh, crucially no cerebral con uh, cortex, which in humans is the area of the brain that would give uh, the experience of pain. And that's not entirely correct. The pain center is actually much deeper um, and is some, uh, in an area that is common to um, also to lobsters. Um, but the cerebral cortex story does provide an interesting, I suppose, wrinkle or nuance because um, it is involved in what is often called suffering. So the fact that you're actually experiencing the painful stimuli as unpleasant, either suffering from them. Um, there's interesting stories of uh, frontal lobotomy patients um, who report experiencing pain in a totally different way than, than you and I would. Um, they feel physical pain, neurologically speaking, but they don't necessarily dislike it. They don't feel anything about it. The, the, the pain is not distressing to them or something that they feel like they're getting, they need to get away from. So there's a difference between pain as a purely neurological event and the actual suffering, which is sort of uh, in our uh, the vocabulary seems to involve an emotional component, an awareness of the pain as unpleasant. Um, and he, he, and I'm, I'm about to quote this literally because I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful one, but I think it's the point where we should start off on in the, is the actual concept of, of boiling the lobsters. Um, and he kind of describes the intimate experience of, of a lobster being, being boiled. Um, whereas, uh, yes, I quote, the basic scenario is that we come in from the store and make our little preparations, like getting the kettle filled and boiling, and then we lift the lobsters out of the bag or whatever retail container they came home in, whereupon some uncomfortable things start to happen. However stuporous a lobster is from the trip home, for instance, it tends to come alarmingly to life when placed in boiling water. If you're tilting it from a container into the steaming kettle, the lobster will sometimes try to cling to the container's sides or even to hook its claws over the kettle's rim, like a person trying to keep from going over the edge of a roof. And worse is when the lobster is fully immersed. 
Even if you cover the kettle and turn away, you can usually hear the cover rattling and clanking as a lobster tries to push it off, or the creature's claws scraping the sides of the kettle as it trashes around. The lobster, in other words, behaves very much as you or I would if we were plunged into boiling water, with the obvious exception of screaming. A blunter way to say this is that the lobster acts as if it's in terrible pain, causing some folks to leave the kitchen altogether and to take one of those light, little lightweight plastic oven timers with them into another room and wait until the whole process is over. Do you want to reflect on that, Nick? Well, I think to kind of pick off immediately where you left off, it's interesting that um, he at least says some chefs cannot bear to be in the room itself, which I suppose raises a small spin-off question, which is uh, how much how much do we value the notion that it's right to take, I don't know, have a kind of courageous effort in taking the life of a thing you're about to eat? Uh, you have to... I suppose, consider how it seems for whatever reason, more honorable if you're willing to look at the reality of what is occurring in the face, as opposed to profiting off the end product without sort of having a, the stomach for the process. And it's a deep intuition. It's sort of a, a, an emotional, intuition that i think a lot of people have uh i wonder how often this occurs in kitchens around where they themselves cannot be around this process because for whatever reason it's sort of a tell that they the chefs themselves think that this creature is trying to to get out to escape and then that means something Otherwise, it wouldn't affect them in the way that it does, right? Yes, I think it's a uh, it's a very um, cute point. It kind of, you know, the, the the sort of the the rational distinction you might make between sort of pain and suffering that uh, uh, that um, Wallace outlined before. He also notes that, um, and I quote again: "Still, after all the abstract intellection, there remain the facts of the frantically clanking lid." The pathetic clinging to the edge of the pot. Setting at the stove, it's hard to deny in any meaningful way that this is a living creature experiencing pain and wishing to avoid or escape that painful experience. And um, I do agree with you in the sense that uh, there's something um, there's something almost cowardly about you know um, eating the hamburger while not looking while not willing to look the cow in the eye and and kind of uh, cut its throat yourself. I, I suppose it's why I perceive meat that comes from hunting as more honorable. And I think a lot of uh, the way you see a lot of ancient societies, um, their relationship with meat and, and animals is one much more of a, a almost a symbiotic relationship with nature. One in which there is something has to die for something in this case, humans to, uh, to live, but that, comes with a very ritualized way of treating the um, the animal and, and the carcass and there's sort of a a sacrifice that is made in an almost um an almost a sacrifice of the soul in which the animal 
is killed and that does something to you right there's a there's a there's something you have to there's an innocence you have to give up to to shoot an arrow in the heart of a deer um, mm -hmm. and to then consume its meat um, that's that's a, a step one has to take that in the way we currently have our uh, our meat industry is no longer one that is being taken and is really only one that comes to light with lobster it's kind of a unique food in that way um so do you think that you know given that there's people not able to bear that that there's a fewer i think this reflects even more on, on animals that we more relate to on a primal level given that they're also mammals such as cows and pigs and yeah yeah well i was thinking before this podcast about uh the ethics of um eating animals that we uh raise in order to be eaten in these sort of large industries that require you know smaller confined spaces just churning through you know a ridiculous amount of these things um and i was thinking you know this article is touching upon one specific uh problem if you want if we want to ultimately call it that about this industry which is the animal suffering that goes along with it um that seems to i mean even rub someone the wrong way in the sense that even if you aren't bothered by it you don't want to think too much about it which is an indicator that it will bother you if you spend too long uh yes. probing on the subject um and so i was thinking about what what would be the character change of that conversation if you could have i don't know some sort of breeding protocol or uh, new technology to emerge that essentially uh could guarantee uh, almost just essentially a zombie product it was it's born if you want to call it that and it really hasn't there's nothing really sentient about it other than it's going through the biological processes that deliver the meat that deliver the food yeah. but we could almost be certain that it's not even registering what the hell is going on like a cow-shaped rock exactly <laughs> cow tasty <laughs> rock um but uh and i mean it's one of those things that i suppose you know that the brain of us that has you know evolved from the african savannah blah 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 doesn't really have a lot of the processing power to understand <laughs> that idea you know we can intellectualize it but there's something sort of dissatisfying about the very notion that you could just have these sort of zombie things that you could do whatever you wanted to and kill in whatever way and on one hand you're solving one problem and yet there's something weirdly distasteful about the notion anyway and it's you know it's where you know there's this weird thing where our brain as it's wired where it came from is just butting heads with certain moral questions that i don't think nature ever really meant for us to butt heads with it's just the sort of historical contingency we find ourselves in right that's like the uncanny valley of the sex robot that's the <laughs> <laughs> you know what well, take you know rely on you to take it all the way back to sex i tell you <laughs> this, is, this is called marketing i said breeding protocols and he got really sweaty <laughs> Look, and we're only 20 minutes in. You have no <laughs> idea what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but what are your thoughts on that? What do you like? Was your impression of if you <laughs> could guarantee that? Does is that do you have to look at that and say problem solved, or at least that problem solved? 
Um, almost yes and no, because the, that's kind of solving the problem the other way around. It's not actually gaining the like the respect and understanding of it, of like the problem. It's just kind of removing uh, mm. the, the need for it. Uh, sure. Because I do think that kind of that realization is an, sort of almost an important maturing process to be at like, to be at a place where something dies and is, is slaughtered. That is, mm -hmm. it's, it's a weirdly spiritual um, experience. And now you're just kind of, you know, removing that that aspect of it and just saying, well, at this point, we've just sort of we've just removed it down to the meat. And I'm I mean, in the end, do I think it's an ethically preferable option? Yes. Um, I would say that for most animals, they're um, sort of the, the more free range you get, the more environmentally unsustainable the meat industry becomes. So, you know, if we could have them all packed up in factory farms and they wouldn't have what I would consider now to be a completely net negative life, then this would probably be ethically preferable to me. So mm -hmm. though, yes, I, I get the, the point of it being an uncomfortable sort of feeling. I think I would, you know, it, it is not more uncomfortable than now going to the grocery store and to the meat aisle and kind of, uh, stuffing away the notion of uh, of what lives these creatures might have lived um so i, I mean I yeah i mean to be fair like, i i agree with your um i agree i sort of have this romantic sense of being a part of the process that takes the animal's life and then is immediately consumed by you and your own um and that's hardwired into me and i understand that i suppose the reality of the modern context is that, you know, unless you were really ethically driven and didn't want to eat meat or any of those products at all, you are ultimately disassociated because you can't be killing things at the rate in which you're consuming them. And you might begrudge that, but it's just the ultimate reality of it, right? Yes. Um, you know, so that, that was sort of my point. It was sort of more like, uh, I'm totally on board with the fact that involving yourself in the process might be the ultimate preference, but, um, you know, the world is, you know, a very different place to where that instinct comes from, right? Yeah, most definitely. I think even just having a, a like, a single experience like that will transfer to that sense of responsibility for other times that you'll consume it. Like, it is, I do think it can be sort of, in a sense, emotionally transferred. Um, mm -hmm to that to some extent of course but going going back to the to the lobsters so would you say then it's a more you know given that we've just sort of made it made the claim that killing the animal yourself would in you know in, in a sense bearing that responsibility and not shoving it off to something else would be in some way preferable as having to make you know that that kind of that sacrifice of the soul yourself we can say that you know boiling your own lobster would be yeah, preferable to grabbing a hamburger in the deli aisle? Yes. yes. I would ultimately say that. I would take into consideration the fact that, you know, I'm not above this process of being disassociated from where my food comes from. And, you know, I, I hope that over time I get better at that 
So I'm not trying to like approach it from this kind of moral high horsey position. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's an important sort of uh, thing to throw out there. But yeah, as a point of, I feel like it says more about you if you're willing to sort of face, um, you know, the idea of, of doing yourself. And I like your point about it transferring. If you engage in that process a couple of times or within your life, it sort of signals uh, that you were willing to go there um, and that, you know, that would might carry over across a lot of like iterated, um, like a lot of iterated events. So yeah, no, it's an interesting question, but yeah, ultimately I think that it's yeah preferable. Yeah. So would you say that, that given that we sort of perceive that to be preferable, I, I still find the, um, you know, and as I said, as you said, you know, the, the moral high horsey position is definitely not one trying to assume. Um, and it's also something that Wallace notes in the essay where he basically says, look, I, um, he says, I have to acknowledge that A, I have an obvious self-interest in this belief since I like to eat certain kinds of animals and want to be able to keep doing it. Uh, and B, I haven't succeeded in working out any sort of personal ethical system in which to believe is truly defensible instead of just selfishly convenient. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and it is a position that I, I found myself in. So, I mean, you're aware that um, some years ago, I um, decided to stop consuming all animal products for about six months. Um, yes. See, to kind of, you know, and one of the reasons I did so was because of um, a, a, a general dislike um, of, of the of the meat industry um, and in general the way animals were treated. And I am not vegan anymore, nor am I vegetarian at, uh, at this point. But this is a decision that was not because I came to a very fundamental ethical conclusion about how this was sort of fine i i didn't discover the you know the, the holy grail of um of, of animal ethics there and have not received enlightenment but it was a purely sense of it was convenient with um uh with uh, with sports it's something that i enjoy eating and it is also culturally significant to me um and therefore i now eat meat um and, but I don't sort of, I, I still hold kind of the same beliefs that I did when I was a vegetarian or a vegan. There's no kind of, there was no change in, in how I perceived the, the meat industry in sort of it's both ethically and environmentally sustainable practices. Um, mm. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is, given that this makes me- Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I have to tune down now. <laughs> uh, given, given that this is how I, um, uh, that, that this kind of notion of the animal kind of crawling out of the pen makes me uncomfortable. Mm. Sure. It does make me sort of um, feel like a huge hypocrite for, you know, mm. just throwing stuff in my, in my basket in the supermarket mm. and not thinking twice about it yeah you know it's interesting i think there's an important point here you see personally there's like a level of suffering so i don't consider the taking of a, like of the life of an animal um morally suspect given that fact alone i think that there are plenty of scenarios where 
in fact, it shouldn't even really be an ethical question. I think, for example, when it comes to the meat industry, you can imagine a scenario in which, and I like this point, it was raised by uh, uh, an evolutionary biologist, I forgot who it was, it might have been Heather Hine, they were saying how much of a good evolutionary deal it was for certain livestock to be raised and slaughtered, right? Wherein they would live longer lives, they would live quality lives when compared to not being in the pen and having, you know, larger spaces free from predators, free from a lot of sort of environmental harm, et cetera, et cetera. And they would actually live longer, more fulfilled lives, and that would be part of the bargain, right? And to me, that would be actually a great bargain. And uh, so live more lives, like there are more cows than there could ever be in the wild, you know, that exactly. Exactly right. And so I think that when people try to make the claim that, you know, they try to equate humans to animals, it's just not something that I can ever be on board with. And, you know, I'm not sure what arguments they bring to the table. Maybe like every life is ultimately equal because, you know, there's you know everyone's equal in nature it's a sort of semi-nihilistic one um i suppose i'm just sort of not interested in that discussion i think that you have to view us as part of nature the whole predatory cycle is a cycle it's sort of amoral um and there's actually a good sort of bargaining uh game to be had with livestock um if done correctly now the sort of like hyper expanded industry that is churning out the numbers that it is um, is a different kettle of fish because you're talking about animals in super compact spaces you know disease is rampant um, they're often just living a terrified existence for however short it is and they're jacked with hormones um, you know that sort of fuck up their bodies you know to get you know more meat out of it um, so i'm not saying that that process is the uh, particularly ethical one I just meant to say, as a baseline, my position is that there is a game there where it is an actual, like, an ethical process, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's sort of, it's, it's kind of a utilitarian view, um, almost, in that, well, we have, there, there's some sort of option where over the course of, if you sort of take the, I suppose, you know, if you, if you plot some sort of graph of, 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 of sort of, pleasure meaning of whatever you know you you value life by then having more of that and you know it generally being in the plus there is that it doesn't really matter how it ends at that point if that ends sort of maximizes the um the area before it then it's okay and i think that's a fair enough point and i don't i don't disagree but it does uh, it does have the requirement that that life is then, as you noted, a net positive. Uh, and with factory farming, I think that is, um, let's say at the very least, a, uh, a suspect claim. Uh, sure. <laughs> and so I tell you my part, removing the sort of life from that equation by all you know accounts is just like an interesting prospect to consider, right? Um, and, uh, you know, you're saying it's not an immoral you're saying it's an amoral process in a sense yes you, that's you, right you kind of take and take almost a step back and take almost a, a purely scientific view towards it and saying well what are we actually learning uh, what like what are we actually gaining from this in mm. just a purely sort of pro-con i mean 
I am an economist. So I, I do like the costs and the benefits uh, system of analyzing it, though I know it has yes. flaws. <laughs> you goddamn bastards. <laughs> Systematizes. But um, I answer your question to play devil's advocate. What is what would you say to uh, what would you say to this? What if the whole discussion about animal suffering as it relates to these kinds of industries, the lobster and all and livestock, beef, et cetera, et cetera, um, what if that is somewhat an opportunity cost in the sense that given how many issues exist in the world today and we have now more than ever ones that relate to you know existential crisis uh, crises, um, how much of this is taking up a bandwidth of our energies that ultimately shouldn't be there? That it shouldn't even really... Is, is this an important enough problem to even discuss? Exactly. You know, I... okay, some, some things are suffering. Um, we still don't really know to what extent they're suffering, what it means for those things to suffer. Um, the whole biochemistry argues of consciousness they're always a bit hazy and um and gray and given how many issues we have in the world right now um and part of that is a problem with feeding a certain amount of people or overfeeding them um <laughs> what would you say is like it just takes up a bandwidth of more important concerns with um i would say that it is a problem that like to me it screams you know in 200 years we're going to look at this the same way as we now do you know treatment of of women 200 years ago um or um you know the way we currently view uh, um, racism and i'm not saying that those problems are equal or um or in a sense in that way morally comparable but in the way that history views them as being like, well, how the hell did people even believe that? It would not surprise me if in 200 years people like, we, like we treated pigs in that way. That was normal. Like we threw, you know, living animals into boiling water and just kind of watched them squirm to then put them on the dinner table. Like this is, this is something that it's like, you know, if you currently think about the gladiatorial games, it was like, you know, you just went to a stadium to see somebody's guts spill on the uh, on the sand after having been ripped open by a sword it's like this was entertaining to you i this i view that as sort of it would not surprise me at all if this would be historically analogous in the in the future um and i think for that matter it is a problem yes we have a lot of we have different uh issues but i don't think it takes away uh, valuable energy also because i don't think it's actually antithetical to a lot of these other issues i I, in general, you know, less meat consumption would be environmentally more sustainable. Um, and I think we have, we have like 7 billion people. We can spare a couple to think about this. Uh, <laughs> I think we're going to be okay with uh, devoting time and energy to this matter. Because I do think it is a morally significant issue. If you come to the conclusion that right now there are billions of sentient beings unnecessarily uh, suffering horrible lives, then that almost by definition seems like a worthwhile issue to me. Mm. It's interesting. Um, I think that um, 
when it comes to the, the notion that it takes up our bandwidth than perhaps a more you know strategic perspective would be what if you instead of trying to focus your energies of framing it like an ethical issue relating to their suffering but devote your energies to uh let's say raising the alarm about the use of um, antibiotics in animals which produces antimicrobial resistance um, and you focus your sort of policy energies there and essentially you produce the same outcome which is um, the reduction of these cramped spaces for these animals um, you know higher regulatory um, regulatory processes for this kind of industry so then it comes so basically what I, my point is that I don't know how much the pain and suffering argument registers enough with people slash government. And if you were to take a much more cold strategic approach, it would be about finding a uh, parallel issue that if you address that, addresses this suffering question invariably. Right? I think it's I think it's a smart way to approach it um, by yeah by finding a, a different issue that resonates more to achieve the same outcome. Um, with, uh, to the antimicrobial, uh, to, the, to, the, to the antibiotic resistance, for example, I think, you know, it, uh, with all of my uh, lack of bi uh, biological knowledge, people who seem to be a lot smarter than me seem to worry about this. So that makes me worried about it. Um, and if it were to, um, produce the same outcome and resonate more, I think that's okay. But the reason I think it resonates more is because the because it doesn't relate to any of our personal decisions. Like why does this, you know, why would that resonate while, as you said, like billions of animal suffering would not? It's because that's a really uncomfortable question. Like the, the thing is, if that's the case, then it's a moral disaster right, on an unimaginable scale. And it's not just one that's sort of happening abstractly, but it's one that, you know, you make a decision about every day. Like every meal you have, you're, uh, you're making some form of, of decision that um, whether directly or indirectly relates to this problem. So the thing is, I, you have limited bandwidth in a day um, that some of you alluded to before, and that's just, you know, if you have to think about every meal as an ethical question, which it might be, that's tiring. I, I, I mean, I've definitely sort of lived in that state where that question comes up every time you do something and it's just not sustainable. It's just, you just get a, like almost a moral burnout. Um, so yeah. I think it's fair enough, but I do think that it's a little bit of a cop-out. I like the, the fact that you know sometimes you make people a little bit uncomfortable and um i think this discussion for me personally is uncomfortable i don't like the the, the notion that i'm contributing to something that i would find horrible but i don't necessarily well, then i feel like potentially we're at two different stages along a um uh a spectrum of coming to terms with the fallibility of people in this regard you see i'm totally along the the spectrum that says i take it that people in all their uh, hypocrisy including myself this is not an issue uh, in which i want to view it from the lens of uh 
the suffering that goes into every meal. And yet I would rather leverage my more dispassionate, you know, rational brain when it comes to something like antimicrobial resistance to produce the desired effect. I suppose I'm just along this, I'm further along this thing where I've just, I, I want to produce the results and I take your point. There's Think something a bit it. of a, there's a bit of a cop out, but I think when it comes to actually getting shit done, it's about finding a way to leverage uh, human fallibility to one's own advantage in a sense. So I think I, I that like- I think the, here because it was the same with the discussion on the zombie cows. It's the, <laughs> it's removing the problem instead of facing it, which is like, yes. don't get me wrong. It's, it, it's, oh, I don't, I look, I don't find any pleasure like more. adopting, <laughs> it's funny. I don't, I don't like that you framed it that way, even though it's exactly what it is. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny, like sometimes I adopt the complete opposite view, which is in the sense that, you know, I, I kind of get up people for a, a kind of like a lack of nerve about a particular subject and it's about confronting the thing head on. Um, but, and so I'm always jostling between a sort of maybe a practical approach and a sort of uh, maximalist approach. And, you know, you've caught me in a clear, clear cut, cynical, straight to the point kind of mood. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, that's Sometimes you need cynical and straight to the point. Like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of ideological discussions are in the end going to be, you know, going to come down to economics. Like I, I am very much kind of convinced of this. Like you can, I mean, I, I work in sustainability consulting. Like, you know, some companies do this because they think it's good. And most other companies are engaged with it because it seem, it, it's, it's like the optimal solution over time. And as long as you line up the incentives correctly, you can achieve a lot more than, you know, than, than, than going to, you know, lay down in front of some government building with your little sign. It's, mm. it's a nice well that's right there. absolutely and i think that you know we've touched on how important incentive structures are they're really sort of the 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 way of framing a lot of fish i think it's a lot of people miss and you know we've had discussions about it in the past which i'm so our audience is you know intimately you familiar know. with well yeah but also you know you know sad they're not you know, haven't witnessed such beautiful conversation and dialect dialectic <laughs> Um, but I think that, um, when it comes to incentive structures, you know, there's, uh, what was, uh, uh, the famous, the famous 20th century economist, not Keynes, uh, Milton Friedman, um, I like his point when it came to, uh, addressing, uh, the process of electing political officials and one of the people in the audience started saying how important it was for you know, the right leader to be erected, the guy, you know, the right stuff, the person who had the, the vision and the moral character. And he says, look, electing the right official is a good thing. I'm not going to, you know, begrudge anyone electing the right official, but that will not cut it. Um, the way you go about producing better social outcomes is by making it politically profitable for the wrong leader to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think that that is the way you have to frame any issue you care about. You've got to look at the incentive structures and you've got to make peace with some devil because uh, you don't get to pay, you don't get to not pay a price. So yeah, I guess that's that's where I'm sort of <laughs> connecting uh, this this argument with 
Ari the Lobster. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have to make, a, I think that's um, reasonable. And then you sort of have to think about, okay, well then in the space of, you know, our current environment, what would be the optimal, you know, solution? Because uh, getting the right leader or the wrong lead to do the right thing is something. It's also, you know, having to make, you know, societal kind of macro decisions. So do you, sort of, for example, if you were to say, if you were to put kind of more basic standards of living on uh, on these animals, and I'm, I'm saying like, you know, you can either remove the worst suffering, which is something you can do, or you can sort of say, well, they have to have kind of a net positive life. So that would include, you know, going outside and, uh, you know, their ki the kids not being taken away immediately, you know, these kinds of, 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 of basic things. Um, Keep the nuclear family together. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that would most certainly lead to their current level of meat consumption being just so wildly out of the realm of sustainable that it's, you know, it, it already isn't, but it, it would make it completely a unaffordable just in, and in both terms of money and in terms of just you know physical space on earth um, and, and then we also have you know the, I suppose the more geopolitical notion of there is um, cultures coming up now who are you know who are developing and where um, you know meat is going to be um, it is a sign of personal wealth it's a sign that you are, you know, being middle class means that you can eat meat more more than one time, more than one day a week, for example. Uh, I struggle with connecting, you know, the the human side because the thing is, that, okay, the human argument is almost so. Yeah, I'd have to make a point about saying a, okay, can people be, be vegetarian? Is that a, you know, for the average person a diet on which they can lead healthy uh healthy lives in which they can sort of optimize themselves i would say probably i'm not a hundred percent sure but mm. i would say that it is at the very least not extremely suboptimal in a health sense i think sure. that it, it, it is doable i'm again not a nutritionist but it mm. seems to me that this is very much possible. Then the the argument for meat is, as Dave Foster Wallace says, it's well, I like eating it, mm -hmm. and that that almost seems like a very trivial notion compared to you know the suffering of a conscious life, and you know it's like I like the taste of a burger, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know why these things in my mind kind of weigh up against each other, and you know on a policy level it's very easy to be preachy about it's like the reason that vegans are so preachy is because for them it's a click in the other way it's just sort of like it makes absolutely no fucking sense to them that this is even a question um, yeah. and we, yeah no look i mean i totally i totally got what you're saying because i think you know there's a lot of shit that gets thrown vegans way and you know as much as i've laughed about it in the past i can never question their ultimate position or, or sorry i could never question why they arrived at their position in the sense that i believe they're totally genuine and that the dot they're connecting is as clear in their mind as day and 
there's a there's certainly a point to it. Now the thing is, I do not. However, you want to, you know, I suppose this wouldn't fly in a lot of circles, but I'll just sort of go out and say it. And I'll go out and limit, expose myself. I do yeah, not well, value. I'm just going to say that I am not associated with this man in any way, shape, or form, and now I will let him talk. <laughs> Throw me on the bus. I see how it is. First podcast. That's all it took. Um, no, but what I was going to say was, um, there's no ultimate way I can square it in my mind that. Human life, I will never value an animal's life unless I own it and I've loved and cared for it over uh, an animal life on average, right? In fact, they will always be radically different. Now, I can make, you know, apologies for this, but it is what it is to me. And it's just the way my brain's wired. I cannot, you know, hold these two in tangent. It's, it would only exist in intellectual abstract space, not in any meaningful space. And so I'd rather be honest let's with... Let's take that as a starting point, because there's, there's people who want to argue point. about that, but let's just take that as like a you know baseline and then go from there. Yes. And so I think, but that's not to say that there isn't a question about when the suffering becomes an important thing to consider. For example, there's no, there's no way I would get more pleasure out of, or, or sorry, net average or more pleasure about the notion of an animal suffering more uh, before it got onto my plate right so you've got to then start thinking about okay well then reduction however it's important in terms of priorities it's certainly something that if the opportunity presented itself i would jump on the opportunity to do right and i suppose taking i suppose referring back to your question which is an important one to consider it's it's when history looks back and it views this thing is the moral issue. I agree that it probably will be. They will only able, be able to do it because they've reached a level of affluence. And uh, I suppose uh, a level of a society where they have the time to frame the concerns as such, right? Um, so what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Like, it's sort of, so, so, mindset, I suppose, yes. But I mean, well, I mean, like you could say, it was never ever going to be a reality that hunter gatherers back in you know back in the day were old days wherever <laughs> were ever going to be concerned with the suffering of animals because they were going to be too concerned that they weren't going to survive the coming weeks because that's sort of how they live day to day transfer okay. you know. just challenge you on that a little bit because it doesn't it does seem that they are, in fact, concerned with this. There's no needless killing. Of oh, yeah, no, animals. that comes back to my point, right? I was uh, saying that there's no, there's like no, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to cut off your challenge. It's a fit don't challenge. Don't interrupt me interrupting. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> I meant more or less that the concern ultimately that um, the suffering of an animal, uh, whether they, or that it took precedence or even was that much uh you know that they have a lot of energies concerned with it was never going to be a factor whereas the level of affluence you might reach in the future you could even imagine technology emerging where the killing of animals is not needed at all like animals are animals and they roam and they they do what they do and we you know get our nutritious substance totally synthetic right and that's the changing of the moral landscape. 
Um, and I suppose there, you know, it's an interesting prospect is how much of the moral landscape has changed now that we can make adjustments or should make adjustments currently, right? That we haven't made. Sure, but you would say that at your current level of affluence, right? Because we're both, you know, you know, privileged little white men sitting in our uh, in our Western countries. Sure. We have reached a level of affluence where we could subsist on a diet that is not, you know, does not have the have animal products in it. You know, you could take your your vitamin B12. You can get your uh, your extra protein powders if uh, uh, if need be, or iron supplementation. Yeah, yeah. And there, there would be no nutritious need for animal products. So wouldn't you say that you're already in that position? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, for example, I've sort of said in my own mind, you know, when I get a high level of employment because, you know, I'm currently uh, waiting on a salary, uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, the, the purchasing of meat will take you know, I, there will be more ethical considerations for me. I would source it from a butcher, not just package directly or these sort of extra steps, however negligible I would take. And you could already argue that I could do that now. And if I'm honest, if I adopt sort of a Jocko Willink extreme ownership type understanding <laughs> of the scenario, right, you'd probably, you'd probably be correct. But it just comes back to what we were saying about the human fallibility and the ultimate hypocrisy of this which is that you can either sit there, you know, self-hating and human-hating, or <laughs> you would hope or adjust slightly so that you could change incentive pro, uh, incentive structures such that you can, you can leverage that to your own advantage. Um, you know, maybe I am waiting for society to change and I'm not willing to make small adjustments now. Um, I suppose there is a sort of impossibility of innocence that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, you know, you'll never kind of get away clean. Um, you know, a lot of people who preach, you know, Let the perils of climate. And cast the first stone, right? Well, sure, exactly. I mean, a lot of people who preach, you know, the perils of climate as it is have a 10 times, uh, 20 times higher carbon footprint than me because of all the flying they do to preach their message. Uh, and so, you know, it, I don't know, it's it's such a hard thing to net calculate and it's sort of trying to systemize it doesn't do it justice. You've, you've sort of just got to embrace a level of hypocrisy, maybe adjust yourself in other ways um, to reduce it. Uh, man, it's just such a, a hard one to navigate. And Nick, the, then the, the, I suppose the question would be, what is the reason that you are not a vegan? Uh, I like meat. I like it well done. Oh, the butter on oh, I like it well it's done. Medium rare. It's like oh no, sorry. When I say medium, medium rare, <laughs> fuck well done. That's what my dad does. <laughs> fucking bastard. Sees the shit out of it. Goddamn animal. He should be in a pen. Um, no, you just you know you got the fucking herbs and garlic and seasoned butter olive oil two two minutes either side uh, i i don't i don't have many better days as far as just the diet is concerned like it ups me it makes me feel good i i feel complete i feel less hungry i feel more up more energy better approach to the day and if you're being really sort of you know if you're squeezing the arm of the sort of net utilitarian point, you go, well, that clearly has to be, you know, you know, factored into the conversation. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sort of like stretch that point. 
because it's a little facetious, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, you, but I take it yours would probably be the same. Like we could intellectualize it all day, but a lot of it's just what it is. I tell you, you like me a lot, <laughs> don't ya? I, I'll wait for that question, but... Uh, See how yeah. I phrased it as well? Yeah, yeah, now I phrased it. Just clip that, everyone, and, t you know... Yeah, clip that. Frame, frame, frame me euphemistically, and uh, we got him. <laughs> I mean, that's your quote now. It's not my quote. Your quote is like, you like me, don't you, Nicholas Anthony? Like, that's a hell of a way to start a conversation. <laughs> it's is true. That, is, that, is that what your Tinder profile says? <laughs> oh yes of course when i get one it certainly will be um but uh yeah um, but but i was saying yes and also i do uh given sort of the the level of support that i do i just feel a lot better if i um eat meat somewhat regularly um and that is just comes down to in a sense my own selfishness it's just being like okay well i think you know adding this would make it somewhat uh, makes me healthier feel better uh and all of that and then at some point i'm kind of willing to close my eyes towards um whatever else happens i even have it a little bit when i'm in the store though because i mean here you have like okay, so in the netherlands it works like you have sort of you have meat and then there's also meat that has star ratings and those star ratings are for something it's called like a better life label and um there's one star two stars and three stars and three stars would be like you know biological free range you know they get like pedicures on thursday like they're very um happy animals um, mm. and one is one star is like okay well sort of the worst stuff is eliminated like chickens don't get their nails you know completely clipped and uh, and all of that and they have 10 centimeters to move around and as opposed to five um and of course these come in different price ranges so the biological option which would in a sense be the one that i would claim to be most aligned with at least my you know animal ethics position let's not let's ignore the environmentally sustainable part of this for a minute um but it's like probably two and a half times as expensive i think that's <laughs> that's about that's about the range and i you know I'm not rich, but I'm also not watching, you know, everything I buy. Um, so then, you know, could I afford it? Probably. Like, it wouldn't make me not be able to pay rent. But mm -hmm. do I purchase the biological meat? No. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it, at that point, it becomes a very concrete decision. It's like, I am now making a decision whether I'm buying the, you know, the same amount of meat for four euros. Or for 10 euros and <laughs> i am now in a sense quantifying what i'm willing to give up for yeah, yeah. you know in a sense supporting this animal having a better life and i just very clearly see myself not do it um mm. and i i find that to be uh say it, i'm almost observing myself not do it and I am unsure what to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, it's an interesting question because, so if you consider something like selfishness as a signal, let, let's say, of uh, potential action, um, at, at what point do you have to accept a level of selfishness in people such that you don't become 
a kind of utopist, which I think you both, you and I both have a sort of, um, uh, let's say, uh, a problem with, um, you know, utopias, or at least those who claim to be able to get there, you know, or, you know, yes. usually are the one parading it around, are not people we generally get along with or agree with. And so you kind of have to go, all right, to what point do you recognize the selfishness is something to be corrected, which it is. We can imagine a lot of instances, personal and scaling it all the way up to community, international, the rest is something worth addressing, but also something worth, you know, sort of, you know, harness the shadow Jungian sense, adopting and, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's this balanced. weird tension. Yeah, because the first part would be, you know, like, you don't want to just accept that this is as, you know, as moral as you're ever going to be because it, you know, excludes the possibility of any form of improvement. So, mm -hmm. but I do um, agree with you that there's also a signal of saying, well, our brains are wired in a certain way that might be limits to how altruistic we can be. It's like, you know, is that random kid um, worth more than my own kid? In an abstract sense, no, to me, well, yes, you know, if I had to push one off a cliff, I'd rather not do it, but I would definitely not push my own kid, right? It's like, it's, yeah, yeah. and it gets I, even dicier yeah. when you're like multiple kids, just all the I, kids. I didn't even want to go there, yet, but yeah, I'd probably push <laughs> a whole school. To save my own kid. Yeah, right? exactly, <laughs> exactly, it's, right? And it's very much and, like a biological reality of you know of of your own of your own child in that way. And it's like, you know, mm -hmm. would I like to look the parents in the eye after that? It's like, no, but <laughs> going back to the <laughs> <laughs> We went there. I never thought that we'd get from lobsters to pushing children <laughs> off the cliff. It's funny where conversation leads. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, you know, uh, yes, Jay, I, 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 like, like... I, I think that tension is definitely there. And I have accepted that, you know, also because I find it incredibly straining to um, uh, to adopt the positions I know intellectually to be true, but, in, but emotionally I'm not convinced of. I find that that constant tension to be one that's very tiring. Um, yes. And it precludes me from doing other things that I think are relevant because I, you know, I'm very aware that my willpower on a day-to-day -day basis is, um, you know, is finite. It's like a bucket and I can, you know, if I if I pour away so much water for you know every meal, then I'm not going to be able to devote that to friends, family, you know, uh, other problems, things that I um, that I in my direct environment care more about. Uh, so there's almost a sense of like I, I want to take away some of these questions by not thinking about them uh, and and come from there. But in a sense. What I always like to kind of translate it to is, okay, well, concretely on a day-to-day, -day, what do I think is going to be the most ethical path for me to take going forward? And, um, you know, is there some way in which I can, you know, leverage that tension that you mentioned and sort of push it a little bit more towards, you know, um, towards uh, and, and me being less selfish? Um, and you know, maybe I should just start, I, I think maybe also, okay, maybe I should start buying the biological meat for like a while 
because it, it kind of it, we talked about the sacrifice in the beginning of it at that point like i'm not sacrificing anything for me because meat is like you know it's not the cheapest but it's not really expensive um and i don't have to look the animal in the eye i don't have to do any of it the only thing i have to do is put some salt and pepper on it um so perhaps that would be the most ethical option like actually enduring a sacrifice that i can sort of feel in this case financially for for eating for eating meat do you think that's or the reason maybe, or do we or we do even go a step further and say that talking about changing moral landscapes the willingness to depart with uh cash or you know a significantly uh significantly more cash uh to opt for the more ethical option is the sort of modern translation of being inserting yourself into the process in modernity it's a kind of substitute now that's perhaps a weak one but nonetheless you know maybe there's something to it um i don't know but uh, i don't it's like i feel like we've covered a lot of ground with um the ethics of it as far as the essay is concerned they also explores um the tourism aspect of uh the main festival i'd like to sort of delve a little into into like that look, look, i'll quote the um the the sort of the, the footnote because this is a, a footnote that he mentions um in sort of his experience and his general uncomfortableness with the uh, the festival as it is so um he he's he has a he's very fond of long footnotes and I, it's uh, something that i quite like about it as well there's a little um there's a little like jazz piano solos at the end there's a little you know things that add the spice to it but here it goes um i confess that i have never understood why so many people's idea of a fun vacation is to don flip-flops and sunglasses and crawl through maddening traffic to loud hot crowded tourist venues in order to sample a local flavor is by definition ruined by the presence of tourists. This may, as my festival companions keep pointing out, all be a matter of personality and hardwired taste. The fact that I do not like tourist venues means that I'll never understand their appeal, and so I'm probably not the one to talk about it, supposedly. But since this footnote will almost surely not survive magazine editing anyway, here goes. As I see it, it probably really is good for the soul to be a tourist, even if it's only once in a while. Not good for the soul in a refreshing or enlivening way, Though, but rather in a grim, steely-eyed, let's look honestly at the facts and find some way to deal with them way. My personal experience has not been that traveling around the country is broadening or relaxing or that radical changes in place and context have a salutary effect, but rather that international, international tourism is radically constricting and humbling in the hardest way, hostile to my fantasy of being a true individual, of living somehow outside and above it all. Coming up is the part that my companions find especially unhappy and repellent, a sure way to spoil the, the fun of vacation travel. To be a mass tourist, for me, is to become a pure late-date American, alien, ignorant, greedy for something you cannot ever have, disappointed in a way you can never admit. It is to spoil, by way of sheer ontology, the very unspoiledness you are there to experience. It is to impose yourself on places that in all non-economic ways would be better, realer, without you. It is in lines and gridlock and transaction after transaction to confront the dimension of yourself that is as inescapable as it is painful. As a tourist, you become economically significant, but existentially loathsome, an insect on a dead thing. That's a hell of a footnote. 
It's one hell of a footnote, and it's sort of, I can't help but think that he is laughing at throwing that little gem in as a footnote. Yeah. Because uh, there's so much in it that it clearly doesn't deserve only a footnote. Um, but he leaves it hanging in the air. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, you know, what are your first impressions of it? Because you're the one who, uh, you know, showed me and pointed me uh, to it when I first read it. So, Well, first, you know, just as in the very first observation, I love the language of it. To spoil by way of sheer ontology the very unspoiledness you were there to experience is a sentence that uh, I can read over and over again and uh, continue to appreciate the beauty of it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's definitely something that I um, I tend to uh, agree with. There's something very confronting about, you know, uh, sitting, like, you know, just walking around somewhere and the only people walking around there are people who don't, like, who, who are also non-native. There's something about just being in a crowd of, of German tourist families, you know, with their little white polo shirts, you know, sweaty beer bellies, and just like, you know, taking pictures and, and, and supposedly having fun. That has always um, made me feel very uncanny on a very fundamental level. Um, and, and I think the way he phrased something like, like for example, I will most likely never visit Venice. I have absolutely no desire to do so because that city to me has reached peak tourism, right? It is, the entire thing is almost a set piece. It, it's fake. It, there's nothing, there's nothing real there to experience. There's sort of this skeleton of, of something that once was great. That's now kind of there for swarming flies to, you know, take pictures of. It's fun. Um, and I find that it's something that, you know, in, in, in when I travel or something that I try to um, to avoid experiencing. But I, I suppose it's it, there is something by the very definition of being a, a tourist that I suppose is, I suppose you can make the, the linguistic difference between tourist and traveler. But um, to me, it resonated in a way that it kind of brought into words something that I've always thought or felt, but never expressed. And perhaps it had the same effect on you. I mean, this quote had an, it was very interesting and still is because within it, there's so much to consider and there's so much I agree with. And yet I'm not sure whether he is extending to extending the point to a point where i cannot agree with it so for example a thing i really like that he touched up on this notion of it basically showing him what a sort of hollow idea it was to be quote unquote an individual i like what he's getting at because for example this notion this kind of hyper libertarian mode notion which i definitely probably once ascribed to about you know <laughs> uh this being autonomous this sort of atomized individual in the sort of um ayn randian uh sense of the word is ultimately a fallacy because you are always embedded in in everything you're embedded within your own biology you're embedded within your own culture 
And there's this, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with much of the concepts of Rene Girard. Um, I know Peter Thiel is, Peter Thiel, uh, whom you definitely are familiar with, cites him as probably the most influential speaker on his way of thinking. And Rene Girard was concerned with uh, a concept he really explored, which was his theory of mimesis, which what what it was for a person to value a particular thing or a group of people to value a particular thing. It was mimetic in his mind. Uh, M-I-M-E-T-I-C, not with the meme. Um, and the idea was that I value something because you value it. And the, yeah. the cycle is sort of repeats itself. So when, when I look at the Eiffel Tower, as a point of being a tourist, I only, I mean, how much can I really sit back and say, this is something that would have always resident, resonated with me on this sort of blank slate individual level? Or is this something that everyone does and everyone has this impression that it's valuable, it's the thing worth seeing? Uh, and how much of that is just mimetically embedded in the consciousness of a class of people like myself? Yeah. Like, how much do I how much do I want to actually do anything? How much of it is all just an influx of value judgments that aren't my own, right? And that's the sort of fallacy of- What does it even mean for the, something to be your own, right? Correct. You know, so there's that point, which I think was really poignant. It's very important because I think as a tourist, it's always mimetic, these sort of mass tourist things, right? You do that because that's what other people do. And that in itself is for your monkey brain, the signal that it's the thing to value, the thing to do. Yeah. Um, and that in itself, when you start stepping back and looking at it and introspecting on it, can be quite a confronting thing. Yeah. Um, now, the point about, he went on and he lamented, he sort of lamented the fact that when you engage in tourism, you somehow, uh, what would you say, um, devalue the thing that you're going to, you're actually, you know, touring. Yeah. You, by your presence, you somehow devalue that. And now in a sense, I understand that. So I take your point entirely with Venice, for example, this mm -hmm. seemed like I haven't been, yeah, this sort of corpse of the city, it's just this thing everyone does um the main festival sounds like the exact same thing there's nothing really organic about it it's just sort of a hollow spectacle um but i don't know how much he's being specific with his point or then stretches it to a more broader point of tourism in general in which point i can't i can't always agree that will always be the case because i think that it's tinged with a sort of anti-humanist sentiment maybe unintentionally that says that the absence of people from spectacle, um, some of it in genuine, but what about genuine spectacle? You know, you stumbling upon a, a beautiful vista of nature um, and you would somehow be tainting that environment. Just can't always fly in my mind. It's too cynical, I read, because in many respects, life is just this long bit of tourism. I don't know how much you subscribe these days to theories of determinism and all the rest, <laughs> but it's sort of like, sorry. For the next podcast. <laughs> Indeed. Um, you know, in many respects, you're just kind of hijacked by a 
a whole you know world of cause and effect and you are essentially strapped to a chair in a in something resembling a sort of tourist function always and i suppose it's this fair. i don't know and so in many respects i understand exactly what he's saying and i can i can totally vibe with the mass tourism industry the sort of inflating a particular area with so many tourists that it it almost just totally defeats the purpose of what it was there to begin with. And then I think that, you know, at some point it did capture something, right? Or there's other places that you could tour on your own. And I don't know if you find the tourist traveler distinction in an important one here linguistically. I think it's sort of just, you know, mincing over words that eventually capture the same thing. But, um, yeah, I, I, they carry a different kind of tone in my mouth. Almost, uh, they there's a like to me the view of the Taurus is the you know the you know American with the beer belly with the camera on his life thing, just kind of walking around being like, why don't they speak American here? That's kind of the that's the view I get when I say Taurus. While mm -hmm. to me, a like traveler would be more of a you know. Yeah, it's it's almost like the good and the bad side of, of the. I suppose I suppose I don't have a third word, so traveling would then be have to be repeated. But uh, of visiting other places, there's a a. To me, there's kind of like two sides of the same coin would be the tourist and the traveler, um, and they, to me, they they kind of represent the opposites of that spectrum. And I do. First of all, your point on the the humanism side of it, I find to be a valuable one because, yes, this has some misanthropic undertones that uh this this sort of this footnote that that needs to be pointed out um if we were to say confine it to the notion of a fairly um uh, large-scale tourism i think you know traveling somewhere that's in a sense mildly let's like not very there's something about it like traveling to places where nobody else travels to or few other people travel to it almost uh you know what it is i think it's also capturing or quality to me yeah i mean i agree and i think maybe what it's also capturing is tourist is i think what he was getting at was this sort of meaningless uh it wasn't even a transaction it was sort of just this thing that was there uh and maybe sort of zero sum extracting something out without giving anything back or returning everything a traveler has this sense like for example you know there's you know from my country you know the whole notion of a backpacker australian backpacker they're everywhere right yeah. now you can you can either say maybe some of that's tourism but there's a traveling aspect in the sense that when people travel they do think they actually bring things back that's trade that is you expanding the community bringing something back to the community and somehow an exchange of making it happening. yeah like or i mean you know you could say sort of the you know uh what would you say a nascent form of merchant merchants and trade is a kind of traveler uh someone has to sort of you know, break new ground and bring something back in order for both to grow this sort of melting pot, multicultural idea about this exchange um, occurring is an important one. So 
that's what I want to sort of maybe save the baby in the bathwater from what I think that this footnote risks um, sort of equating. Yes. You know what I mean? I, I, I think it's a good point. Um, and I do think that in a sense, it, it comes down to the, the last sentence. So he's saying, as a tourist, you become economically significant, but existentially loathsome. And it's mm -hmm. by kind of, you know, avoiding becoming existentially loathsome, I suppose. Um, that would be through adding something of value, or at least not desecrating anything, um, anything there. Exactly. And, and that's the sort of thing of like, well, is the mere presence of someone already enough to do so? And to me, you know, of 10,000 people, yes. Of like one person, yeah. no, there's a scaling yeah. problem that comes with the... Uh, Death by a thousand cuts, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. It's like, it's fun if, you know, it's like when you're in traffic, right? It's like, why, why are all these assholes going here? It's like, you're one of the assholes. It's just, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's just, fucking but it's bastard. something you always think. Like, why has everyone got this idea? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Reminds me when I was like, no. It's like, you know, you're right. on the Eiffel Tower with like a billion other people. And you're just like, you know, why couldn't these guys just stay home? Like, <laughs> that's right. I mean, I remember when I like the notion that uh, going to a movie uh, on Christmas Day was somehow a novel one was quickly shattered by everyone else having this idea which totally ruined the experience yeah. <laughs> and the idea <laughs> so yeah for sure it's very frustrating i suppose i suppose it might also have okay do you think it might also be confronting that there's you know that you think you have some uh, some nice idea and that the things you want to do is also what everyone else wants to do and that your your notion of being somehow unique or um or you know having this specific taste is just shattered by the fact that you're just another you know person in the horde visiting the same it, place i think it was confronting when i was coming to terms with it from you know what was essentially the opposite position i'm totally on terms with it now and i think that it's adjusting the ling the lingo slightly i heard this interesting podcast with a guy called daniel schmachtenberger which i think i've mentioned to you in the past really you know nice. Schmachtenberg, I mean, what a fucking name, but um, really brilliant thinker, um, first principles kind of uh, guy. And he was discussing this a little bit and he said, you know, the notion of an independent thinker is a misnomer, it cannot exist. I prefer interdependent thinker, someone who's kind of dine a la carte from a hundred different spaces uh, of knowledge, a hundred different interpretations all of which are culminating this sort of emergent quality that can um, come out of it. But nothing's ever really, nothing's ever really yours. Um, and, you know, you either, I mean, there's ways of framing where that's really constricting or maybe in a way, once you realize that it's liberating, I see no way around it personally, logically. So I've sort of come to grips with it in my own way. Um, what do you think? Oh, I definitely think that the notion of, of an independent thinker is one that's convenient linguistically, but under, you know, further examination fairly quickly falls apart. Um, I, I also think that, you know, it, it's a little bit 
almost procedures to be like, oh, haha, there cannot be such a thing as an independent thinker. Everything is dependent on everything else. Like, yes, of course, we're just trying to say that this person quite obviously has like, you know, a viewpoint that comes from his own backgrounds and everything that is something not currently seen a lot and whether or not, you know, that's some, some, some virgin train of thought. It's like, you know, a new idea based on however many other uh, places would kind of uh, put you in there, even though they are, you know, we're all the product of our predecessors. Um, so I would, you know, I'd agree. I think it's a little bit of an easy point to make, if I'm honest. Like for the uh, for the guy, I think he can. Uh, I think he can do better. But um... oh, he certainly does better. But I like <laughs> that sort of linguistic kind of like change. I thought you know, interdependent thing. It'd be funny if that caught on. Uh, yeah. Maybe yeah. it means something. Maybe it doesn't mean anything. But um, yeah, nah. I it's nonetheless. I think it's something that. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like. I don't know, those who parade themselves around and say, I'm an independent thinker. It's sort of like, I am an, I am an alpha male or I am a, you know, you know, independent, strong woman. It's always just like, okay. Yas sure. queen. Yas queen. But, <laughs> you know, it's sort of bereft of anything interesting. It's more, <laughs> I don't think it does what it, you know, you think that it does. Um, so no, no, yeah. not. But, you know there's, there's uh i don't know if you want to explore the footnote uh further there was actually a little um little passage i found quite interesting or a little um uh point that he raised during the essay um about uh the fact that um lobster as it is is a very kind of considered you know, higher class type of meal. Yeah. Um, when it wasn't originally, it was actually a very low class food eaten by, you know, the poor and institutionalized. Yes. And it reminded me of a particular Twitter thread that I read a while ago. You might even be familiar with it um, about uh, what is considered trashy if you're poor, but classy if you're rich. Right? <laughs> and there are, I remember reading some brilliant examples and I, I managed to find the thread and, and pick out a few because it actually kind of, uh, it got a bit viral. And I thought it was really just an interesting, some of them, they don't land for me because there's just too, uh, there's too many mitigating circumstances. The connection is sort of, uh, it's not that interesting. Um, but other ones, they're just, they're, all right, let's, let's see. I had a few, hold on, I'll write them down. Um, well, where are we? Let's have a gaze. So this article says, tiny houses, essentially they're trailers with fancy names. People look down on living in a trailer, but people live in a tiny houses and consider it to be minimalistic. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, two languages. <laughs> very american in the uh, in that way or very like english speaking focused but uh i can definitely see that yeah not taking care of your kids when the less fortunate do it it's neglect when rich people do it it's called having a nanny <laughs> <laughs> some mitigating teeth. factors here as well but still sure different. but i thought it was fun <laughs> fake teeth <laughs> um 
this one is like doing drugs and i was like yeah there's a bit of mitigating factors there but you know i kind of i sort of kind of uh being a daily drinker if you're a poor you're a daily drinker you're just an alcoholic if you're rich and a daily drinker you've got a nice bourbon collection are you attacked jay i feel yeah i feel very offended it's just, i'm saying this while <laughs> sipping on whiskey so i'm not uh I, I, at least i belong to the i don't know do i i think i belong to like you know to the middle here where everybody just hates me like, you know, <laughs> i'm not rich enough to buy the nicest whiskeys and i'm not sort of not poor enough to be kicked around so it's just it's just nobody likes me eating cheese and crackers as a meal <laughs> 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 Fucking multiple credit cards <laughs> Uh, there's just some there's some really good ones then uh, and some of them like i said they don't really have much there's no real substance to it um but other ones you kind of got to go there are just practices by whatever means however arbitrary um that we ascribe these ways and it's just funny how the turntables uh, you know it's interesting because yeah i mean uh the fact that you know according to this essay uh you know harsh penal environment of early america some colonies had laws against feeding lobsters to inmates more than once a week because it was thought to be cruel and unusual i mean it's like it says a lot about you know the current the current idea that it's somewhat like you know a thing that uh you know middle class and and up would want to eat um, yeah, I think I think it actually comes back to what we were talking about, like what you were talking about before. It's sort of how are your perspectives formed, right? Why do you like something? It's like, mm. well, why do you like lobster? It's a good question. Yes. It's like, oh, this is delicious and everything like that. It's like, you know, 150 years ago, if you had tried lobster, would you have liked it knowing the cultural weight that kind of came uh, came with it? So oh, yeah. Like if you start if you start kind of like applying the theory of mimesis to pretty much everything of value, which is essentially anything worth arguing about or considering in the world, it's a really useful theory. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's only the tip, of the tip of the iceberg on his broader theory of the scapegoating mechanism, which is probably worth a podcast in and of itself. Um, so we won't touch on it. But um, I thought that, uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting um, little um, piece of information um, uh, that, uh, yeah, I, I just reminded me of that Twitter, Twitter feed. Um, nice. Yeah. Okay, so, so to the conclusion we come is that rich people are hypocrites, eating meat is hard, um, and you want to, classrooms of, pushing classrooms of children off of cliffs can be justified in certain circumstances. That's the yes. Uh, who's who said who's and who said dialectic wasn't fruitful? Yeah, exactly. These are the conclusions one comes to uh, <laughs> in these sorts of conversations. It's very Indeed. good. <laughs> well, Jay, I feel like I feel like we've uh, touched on a lot of, if not all, the main points that the uh, the essay is trying to raise. Do you have any final thoughts? Any concluding? No, I think I summarized it pretty well just now. I think I'll I'll leave my contribution at that. Uh, I'll leave the final words to you. Oh, don't throw me on the spot like that. I was going to pawn off and, and at least at least have thirty seconds to uh, <laughs> to come up with my own little closing <laughs> little piece. Um, no, in that in that sense, I think that um, yeah, 
you should read read uh, David Foster Wallace. I think you know you've you've introduced me. I read a few other of the essays that this uh, work was uh, a part of. I think he has a great writing style. I only briefly read his biography. I think um, he had a kind of very tragic life, but uh, he has a very good prose. I think it's really well written. Yes, it's very easy to read. Um, it's very much like you're you're in a conversation um, with someone. It's like a non-boring sort of conversation lecture where he's smart enough to realize whatever his writing prompts, you know, what thoughts that might emerge from your mind to then address them and kind of guide you through um, sort of the next thing. I very much had a thing of like, is, you know, oh, but what about this? And then like the next paragraph would be addressing that. Um, and that it, it, it speaks to to his intellect and his writing and the uh, um, and it, it makes for for reading where you really feel like you're sort of on the same page with someone um, like a like a good conversation like this one. Yes. And with that, folks, I say fare thee well and uh, tune in for our next, uh, you know, what do we end up selling on slightly inebriated? this is the most dynamic podcast no one even knows no what the name of it is, is. It's, or yeah, exactly. what people in the podcast are called you know they yeah. might still be they might still be yeah i well, say for a point of uh for a point of um what would you say continuity we keep these pseudonyms of nick and jay going forward i think this is uh will make things easier for us and for the audience I don't know. I've, uh, you know, I, I changed my mind a lot. I've changed a lot since breakfast. So I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I'm going to keep my, my options open. But uh, we'll, see, we'll see. Okay. All right. Good to talk to you, buddy. All right. Good to talk to you, too. And with that, we're out. We're out.